Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 86 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to examining the work of writer, director, producer J.J. Abrams and the extended Bad Robot universe. I'm your co-host, Matt Crandall, here as always with Marcelo Inostroza as we continue our rewatch of Fringe season one. Today, we are talking about episodes 16 and 17. The first episode up, Unleashed, aired April 14th, 2009. Written by Zach Whedon and J.R. Orsi, directed again by Brad Anderson. And Marcelo, do you like pina coladas? I do not. One thing about this episode that I liked very, very much, it's a creature feature episode. And one notable thing, just just one notable thing I noticed in the opening credits, it's the first time that J.H. Wyman was credited as an executive producer of the show. And that's important because J.H. Wyman will become a bigger part of the show moving forward. But I just found it interesting that on this episode was his first credit. Um, I really love this episode because it harkened back to some of those B-movies that I like to watch as a kid of those giant, you know, freak, freakazoid monsters made by mad scientists for whatever reason. And I really liked the fear factor of this episode. But the one thing that I liked above all is that when the French team is investigating this, Walter, while he's investigating it, gets this urge to look into his old notebooks. And he figures out that he was thinking about making a monster like this back in his old lab days, back when he still had all the marbles in his head. So I really like the fact that Walter felt responsible for putting this creature out there. Although he didn't genetically engineer this creature, but his research led to this creature being a thing. I also liked the extra tension in this episode of uh, Agent Charlie Francis, Agent, Agent Charlie Francis being attacked by the monster and the monster laying eggs or larvae in his uh, digestive tract. So that whole thing added much more tension to this episode. And uh, one thing I didn't like is the beginning of this episode with the, with, with the animal rights activists. It seems like animal rights activists always in popular entertainment get portrayed as like crazy people. And animal rights activists aren't like that. And I really don't like when they portray animal rights activists as, as crazy, dumb co college kids who really don't understand what they're protesting about because anim true animal rights activists really know what they're protesting about. And they're not really crazy, but it seems like it, it, it seemed like to me that these kids were just overreacting to something that was may maybe not, on maybe not fully, you know, you know, Legal, but semi-legal. And I really didn't like that angle to this episode or the way that this episode opened. It was kind of the stereotypical animal rights activists, as you say, in a lot of Hollywood stuff are just either dumb kids or smoking hot women in cat suits if you're Kevin Smith. And so I just think that sometimes we walk this line where it's a little bit unrealistic and it's always about, you know, free the animals or usually it's some hippie guy in sandals who goes crazy. This one, I liked that the very first scene is Olivia reading a bedtime story 
to her niece, and it's all about monsters and her asking, monsters aren't real, right, Aunt Liv? And Aunt Liv being like, Ehh. and then we cut to the the animal escape moment, and it's straight out of Jurassic Park, that scene, where they go into the wrong room, and then all of a sudden the guy's looking around, holding onto the door as he's getting dragged in, and the other monsters grabbing him and pulling him up and it's just like the opening of shoot her from Jurassic Park like it's literally shot straight out of that opening the first raptor attack in Jurassic Park which sets the mood so that we know okay something crazy big got out this is not just uh, a monkey shines killer monkey or something this is something really weird and I liked as it went on that Walter as you mentioned has things in his notebook relating to this process. And for much of the episode, he's not sure if this is actually his fault or not. Did he take this too far? Did he somehow give these people the information to make this possible? And I like that it near the last third of the episode, he finds out that it wasn't him. It was actually the guy that he was inspired by who has finished the work and he's relieved that this is not on him. Whereas other things still, as we go, keep tracing back to Walter and he is more explicitly guilty, but this is not necessarily one of them. And it actually helps them figure out what is going on because of Walter's connection, but it wasn't Walter who brought this one over the finish line so I really like that. The other thing you already mentioned, Charlie gets infected and it gives us a ticking clock that we care about for the last half because we don't want Charlie to die so much so that they even went and introduced Charlie having a wife in this episode to humanize him. And that's when you knew stuff was going to go wrong. Cause I'm like, we're seeing Charlie at home with his wife and he's telling her he's fine. Shit's going sideways ASAP. So I like that. Apparently that actress is his real wife in real life, or at least at the time this show was made. So that was kind of interesting. And anytime you add a ticking clock of a character that we care about, and Charlie has been a peripheral character that in general we like, because whenever there is a chance for him to side with Olivia, he always does. He's very protective of her. They have a good friendship. So Charlie is one of the good guys of the bureaucracy of the, the fringe FBI side. So I love that they put him in harm's way because we don't want him to die. So we care and it elevates the stakes. The other thing that I thought this episode absolutely crushed was this episode had more Walterism moments of dialogue than I think any other episode. Like I kept having my notes app out to write down like funny lines and there was just so many. Starting off when Peter walks into the lab and he thinks he's about to eat a little bit of Walter's breakfast and it turns out it's Walter growing a human ear. And I just like when Peter's like, what? It's it's an omelet. And Walter's like, it's not an omelet. And Peter's like, why is there an ear in the omelet? And he's like, it, it's a protein rich incubator and it was growing. And Peter's like, oh, it was growing. That's just perfect. And Walter goes, no, it was not perfect. You ruined it. 
And I just love that Walter is getting mad at something that like is so out there. Like Peter is in the right. Why the hell would you not label it or put a sign? So I love that. And then there's a couple, you know, are you okay? Did you take anything? Oh, psychedelics? No, not since Thursday. So I just love that there's lots of Walterisms. My favorite I'll mention later, but Walter and Peter have some great interaction in this episode as all of the bad stuff is happening. The one thing that I've really noticed over the past couple of weeks that we've been talking about these people who have been inspired by Walter's work or these people who have continues or, or these people who have who have continued Walter's work, they're really not concerned with collateral damage for the things that they do. And the really interesting thing about all these people who do these things, the writers haven't done a good job at giving the bad people who commit all these crimes a logical reason for doing what they're doing. 99% of all these strange things that have been happening, whether they go back to Walter or not, these people do these things because they can. Not because they have to, or not because they're trying to fix something. They do it because they can. And again, they don't think about the bigger implications of what they're doing. I would really like to see a fringe episode with a scientist who does some who does something crazy, but he does something crazy for a specific reason. Give us a scientist with a little bit a little bit of a more humanity. Right. I I just want a scientist that when we show up to your lab and say, motherfucker, some strange shit went on here. I just want them to be like, you're right, it did. Why are you guys painting? Why are you guys fixing the lab? Um unrelated coincidence. Like I just hate moments like that where we're like, okay, we're circling back to this eventually. And as Olivia interviews different people, then she realizes that scientist was lying and that his son was one of the ones killed and we circle back. But I would just love for when they show up at one of these places, don't lie, just own it. Come on. I, I would much prefer that, but I do like that. There is some detective angle to this where they think that they're looking for three missing people. And then because Walter starts eating the food in the car after these kids all get murdered, they realize that there was four drinks and that they're looking for an extra person. And I love when they show up to the frat house and, you know, just the kids there are idiots with bongs and stuff. And I thought that was really funny. And, uh, yeah, my, my highlight of this episode, like I said, is mostly just, we are dealing with some sort of creature. And when we finally do get to the creature, the effects are not incredible, but they actually aren't as bad as I expected them to be for a show this old. They were passable, but they build up what this creature could be because we don't see much of it. We see a bit of a tail when Charlie gets attacked. We see the gigantic claws. And as they're building up the myth of like what this thing could be, I don't know that that final sewer reveal really pays off, but I do love when they are describing and they're like, so it's got the claws of a lion and the fangs of a snake. And Walter just goes, it reminds me of a woman I once knew in Cleveland. 
this be like a snake that's eight feet long? And Walter's like, her name was Harriet something. And I just loved it. Like, what is he talking about? And then Peter's like, okay, so we're looking for Big Bird. And Walter's like, don't be ridiculous. I think we're looking for a pterodactyl. And it's like, okay, so Big Bird is ridiculous, but pterodactyl is perfectly fine. I love all of those moments. And like I said, just the dialogue. Peter gets zingers where he's like, yeah, we're looking for a motley crew of lab animals that got together and decided to exact their revenge on mankind. Um, But when Charlie gets infected and then we find out that the other dead body, there's a moment where we see the body bag moving and it's the classic horror movie thing where they're like, he's still alive. And you're like, no, he's not. This is something else. And they unzip it. And my favorite moment of the episode is they unzip it. And we see all of the larva on the body moving around. And Walter goes, we must collect them. Peter Petri dish. And then in disgusting David Cronenberg fashion, the body bursts open and tons more larva come out. And Walter goes, make it a bucket. And Astrid goes, I'm going to be sick. And without missing a beat, Walter goes, two buckets. And I just thought that was the absolute best part where we get this disgusting horror moment with all these larvae and just that funny, like one bucket for the larva and one bucket for Astrid to puke in. And then we know that if Charlie doesn't get saved, this is some serious shit because these larvae are a growing and we don't want more of this horrible creature. So Marcella, what are you thinking as we know that Charlie has these larvae growing in him? And if we don't find the cure, he's going to split open. The first time I saw this episode way back in the day, as, as I've already said, I'm a huge Charlie Francis fan. So when, when I saw this episode back in the day and I saw that scene that that you just talked about when the larva burst out of this guy's chest i was like oh my god like is that gonna happen to charlie are we gonna get like a alien chest burster scene i was like no not charlie but i really liked the way that again i i've already i've already mentioned it um in my earlier comments but i like the way that walter behaves in this episode and the way that he feels responsible for what is happening here. There is one scene when, you know, Walter says, listen, Charlie's got maybe 24 hours left, right? And Peter, Olivia, and Astor are looking at a map to see if they can track this thing. And Walter goes, what good is that going to do? You know, you know, and then Peter goes, you know, it wasn't your fault, right? Right. You didn't, you didn't do this. Somebody else took what you Somebody else took your idea and ran with it. This is not your fault. But then Walter, you know, in disgust, he says, tell that to Agent Francis. So I really like the weight that Walter puts on himself in this episode. So much so that when they go down into the sewer to try and catch this thing with its larva, Walter goes, well, he doesn't go crazy, but he does something weird a character. He actually locks... Uh, Peter and Olivia behind a grate inside the sewer. And he goes and face this thing by himself. I'm like, wow, he really feels responsible for this. And I really like Peter and Olivia's reaction. Like they're really concerned about him. They, they don't want him to die. 
And I love the final showdown with Walter and this thing in the sewer because this thing is on the roof, but you see its head pop out and then you see the tail waving. And then at first I thought that he got stung because when the, when the monster like hit the ground, it whacked him, but it whacked him on the side of his, his arm. It didn't actually go into him or it did. Maybe it did. But the money shot of this episode is when the creature's going towards Peter and Olivia and it just jumps. And then all of a sudden you hear two pops and the camera cuts back to Walter carrying a desert eagle. And I'm like, that's awesome. Because it was really nice to see Walter save the day in a in a literal sense. Because Walter has saved has saved the day from a medical sense a lot of times in Fringe. But to see him physically out there and saving Olivia and Peter from this thing was really awesome. The last thing I'll say about this specific scene, I love when they're all sitting in the sewer and Walter just starts singing this creepy song. And I'm like, really? You really want to be singing this really creepy, this really creepy unsettling song right now? Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. And as you mentioned, Walter does take responsibility. He feels that he has to step up. We've got to confront this thing in the sewer we got to make this happen. So I love that. I love that Walter is the one to take it down and save the day. And I do think he gets stung, but it's just implied that because they discover the cure right after that, that he probably just cured himself. Um, so I thought that was great. They do mention for any bad robot people, Kelvin genetics is mentioned about 18 times in this episode as being one of the companies that they're dealing with. So we had to point that out. And the observer, of course, was on the news feed that Charlie's wife was watching when they think that it's like a mountain lion or, or whatever that attacked people. So those things had to be said. But I do love that finale is just very atmospheric. I love that Walter, as you said, when he's like singing that creepy song, but even he has some Walter moments where they're in the sewer and he's like, you know, I need to I need to go to the bathroom. Can somebody direct me to the facilities? And Peter's like, facilities? Walter, this is the sewer. You're standing knee deep in the facilities. So I just love that. And then they do cure Charlie. And the other best part of this episode is they're like, oh, yes, it's working. They're dying. And uh, he's like, okay, what happens now? And Walter's like, now you crap them out. And it's like, okay, it's that simple. But I love that they save the day. Walter steps up. And we do get this fun creature feature murder mystery as we go. So this episode isn't super mythology heavy. It is mystery of the week, but it takes a lot of influence from classic monster movies, adds a lot of really fun dialogue and is very entertaining before we get to a much heavier episode because episode 17 bad dreams is written and directed by the same man, Marcelo. Akiva Goldsman has entered the chat. Yeah, uh, we've been sort of waiting for this to happen, or at least I have. I don't know how you feel, Matt. But this is this, I think, is the first episode of Fringe written by Akiva. And for those of you in the know, I have a love and hate relationship with the man. And I know Matt kind of has a hate and hate relationship. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so Matt said it right there. He has a hate and hate relationship with the Kiva Goldsman. But personally, before I start talking about the episode, I really think that Akiva, Akiva and J.H. Weinman, as we move forward here throughout the series, they really, from my aspect, did some amazing work that really added to the mythology of this of the series moving forward. But this episode is really, really interesting because this episode goes into the whole thing of if you have a dream and if you kill somebody in that dream, what would happen if you do it for real? And I really like the fer- I really like the frenetic sort of unhinged Olivia Dunham that we get in this episode because she's convinced that she killed this woman on the subway. And to not sleep, she takes sleeping pills. She is so unhinged in this episode that it is glorious. And the fact that with with each new thing that happens, she gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And Peter has to be the one who actually has to, you know, call her aside at a you know at a, at a specific point in the episode and say, listen, you need to get some sleep. You need to stop taking these caffeine pills, and you need to start making sense because there's no logical way that you killed this woman on the on the train track and you were responsible for that woman killing her husband during dinner. There's no possible way. It's impossible. So I really loved the psychological toll that this episode took on our main character of Olivia Dunham. Yeah, it's one of the more interesting parts of this because we find out that is basically dreamwalking and seeing these murders. And she feels like it's more than that. She's not sure if she is the one doing the murders. And then as it is revealed that obviously she isn't actually doing the murders, but she has some sort of connection to the murderer and that connection links them psychically, but also the way that this person kills is that they're like a reverse empath where they project their feelings onto others. And I thought that was like a really interesting thing where you could be fine. But if you got too close to this guy who was super depressed and feeling suicidal, you would then become super depressed and feeling suicidal. And that was a very twilight zone kind of thing that they threw in here. And I really love that Olivia is generally worried that she's actually doing this. And even when she goes to that restaurant after the second murder and she riles up the manager and she's like, was I here? Was it me sitting there? She is unhinged, as you said, because she really doesn't know the difference between the dreams and reality. And with everything she has seen as part of the fringe team, she knows that even though she physically isn't there, there could be some way that she is influencing these events and making them happen because of everything she has seen. So I did like that, you know, the murders are pretty grisly. That first one especially is really rough because it's a mother with a child and a red balloon, of course, now immediately when you see a red balloon, you think of Pennywise and it, and you're like, okay, this is going to go bad. And the kids untying the balloons and you're like, 
what are you doing, kid? I know something terrible is going to happen. And I just thought that it was cool the way that this unfolds as this mystery that is really affecting Olivia. So if Olivia doesn't get right and figure out what's going to happen, she may never sleep again or the emotional traumatic toll it will take on her will be too much to carry forward. So what are you thinking as we're we're wondering for the first half whether this is Olivia somehow doing it and it's not until, you know, the halfway three quarters mark that they do get more information that leads us to the actual culprit. I was thinking that she was psychically somehow connecting to the real person that did this. And because I was thinking that as the episode goes along, when they invent, when they investigate that first murder of that mother, supposedly jumping in front of the train on the surveillance footage, there is a quick glimpse and you miss it moment of a guy walking past frame and with a scar on his face. So I was like, why would that be in the footage? And this is when I first saw the episode years ago. I don't know. I don't know what made me focus in on that guy, but I'm like, okay, they're looking at some footage. And all of a sudden this guy with a scar on his face goes across screen. And I was like, why would they focus on that guy? And then later on the episode, as you mentioned, when Olivia goes postal on that restaurant worker, he says that a young guy in his 20s often comes into the restaurant with a scar on his face. So I'm like, okay, who's this? What's the story with this guy and this scar on his face? So the French team does a little investigating and, turn, and it turns out that this guy... Uh, had been in a mental institution for X amount of years. And I love the scene when they find out that he's in a men- that he was uh, recently um, a patient in a mental institution. Walter says, I'm not going there. This episode, once we meet him, this episode ties back into the overall fringe mythology. And it turns out that this guy that this guy was a patient of the Cortexafan trials. And his whole thing was the ability to make people do something based on the emotions that he was feeling, as you said. But the reason why he felt so lonely and isolated and started doing these things is not because he wanted to do them, because he couldn't control them, right? And... He started, you know, he he felt lonely and he felt like he was the only one. But when he met Olivia, he really got a quote-unquote zest for life back again. And he was able to sort of stop himself from doing these awful things to other people. And I really, really liked that scene with Olivia and him on the roof when Olivia is sort of talking him down and trying to stop him from killing himself and other people. Uh, what did you think about the overall connection? So I really did like that when they realize that the guy has a scar on his face and they can somehow track him down. Like you said, they realize he was at a mental institution. They tell us Cortexafan. And of course that was something we hadn't heard of 
until two episodes ago. But so now we're like, okay, this is important. And as we realize that it's his cortexafan and his super emotive behavior that's causing this, we're still wondering why Olivia would have a bond with him. And in that, Walter says, well, you know, the way that William Bell did it during these cortexafan trials was that he paired the children up into a buddy system and everyone had a buddy so that they would be able to go through this together and, you know, not be as scared. And these buddies formed a bond and maybe there's some link to you and Nick Lane because of that. And Peter's like, well, that's ridiculous. She's never been part of a cortexafan trial. And she's like, Actually, Peter, I, there's a chance I might have been part of a little Cortexafan trial as a kid. And so I love that in that moment, and Peter's like, well, that's disgusting. Why would William Bell experiment on children? Walter, did you know about this? And Walter's like, I would never. I knew nothing of this. I would never. And so when they realize who is the actual killer, it's this guy, Nick Lane, and that him and Olivia do have this link. I like that there's that moment where they realize, okay, he's probably going to kill again, but Olivia, you need to dreamwalk with him so that we can find out where he is to try and stop him. So I love that that there's a whole sequence where she goes under and he goes to a strip club and he walks in and it's like really... 80s serial killer kind of vibe and like it's creepy and it's almost like David Lynch she's in there and she's watching this guy get excited and his excitement is transferring to the stripper so then she's getting aroused and all of this is to now they probably wouldn't be able to afford it's a Lady Gaga song before Gaga was huge but uh, I just like that we have this and then they go and we know that this woman is going to die before they can get there and they know it too but they have to get the information and this sequence is very tense and down except for they break the tension when Nick Lane and the dancer go to get it on we just cut to Olivia and she's like oh oh and they're like is he hurting her (laughs) and Astrid's like um no, I don't think that that's, and Walter, Walter doesn't get it till like much into this. And it's such an awkward personal moment that we're witnessing, but they play it for laughs before then this poor dancer slits her own throat because Nick's depression takes over, but this leads them to being able to find where he is. And as you said, when they get there, the rooftop is this big showdown And he is still feeling suicidal. And this has transferred to multiple people on top of this rooftop. So if they can't talk him down and figure out a good resolution to this, many people are going to commit suicide in like a horrible M. Night Shyamalan, the happening mass way. So I love that. And when the two of them, Olivia and Nick are on the roof and She doesn't explicitly remember him, but he remembers her. And as soon as he sees her, he's like, Olive, you know, you were my buddy during this thing, and I can't believe it's you. And so we're realizing, 
All right. It is for sure that Olivia was part of these trials. This was her buddy as part of the buddy system. And they are able to get him. People, people do die in that finale, but they are able to, to, to stop him. And I like that we made this mystery of the week tie into this greater thing of what lengths William Bell was willing to go to with his experimentation. And we have talked about William Bell a lot. The cipher in this episode spells out belly, which is William Bell's nickname. And finally, at the end of this episode, we do see a video of Olivia as a kid in the drug trials. And we hear William Bell's voice on the tape, which is, oh shit moment number one, where if you are good at recognizing voices, you can recognize that this is an iconic voice right away. This is somebody big and you're like, oh shit. And then the other oh shit moment of the last 30 seconds of this episode is that Walter's voice is also on the tape. And Walter, who earlier in the episode assured us he would never be involved in drug trials on children was a hundred percent involved and actually was there in the room experimenting on Olivia fucking Dunham as a child. And it's both awesome when you realize who that William Bell voice is and infuriating when you realize that Walter Bishop, who we have come to love has more secrets and is more sinister than we ever could have thought. Marcelo, are you enjoying the agony and ecstasy of that moment when you're putting all of those things together? It is really nice to hear finally the voice of William Bell. And as somebody back in the day, you guys know that I'm a Star Trek fan. You guys know this. It's been highly, it's been highly hinted at during this podcast. And one day we're going to talk about Star Trek on this very podcast. But if you're a Star Trek fan like me, there is one actor that is a little bit above all the rest of them. My favorite character from the original, original series is Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy. So back in the day when I watched this episode and that voice comes up, I'm like, <gasps> that's Leonard fucking Nimoy as William Bell. I lost my mind. I had to come back down because a couple of minutes after we heard, um, you know, um, Spock's voice in the episode, we hear the voice of Walter. And I'm like, you son of a bitch. I'm like, I hope when Olivia finds out what you did to her as a child, I hope that she punches your lights out because this also shows, I mean, you've hinted at it. I've hinted at it throughout the course of this rewatch. Walter cannot be trusted. Walter is the most unreliable narrator that we have on the show. So I, at this point, will take nothing that Walter says with any believability moving forward because he lies. The weight of loving Walter as a character so much, the weight of being such a Star Trek fan made this episode so deliciously 
I mean, made this last moment so deliciously gratifying, but so deliciously frustrating in that Walter is still lying about a lot of shit. And possibly he's lying about the biggest thing that we have now moving forward. He lied to Olivia and he's lying to everybody. So I cannot wait until it comes out in the future. Matt, what did you think of hearing the voice of Mr. Spock as William Bell? Because like I said, I lost my mind. My first thought was, oh my God, they got the director of Three Men and a Baby to do a voice cameo. No, of course I was uh, thinking, oh my gosh, they got Spock. And this this episode aired about two weeks before Trek 09 hit theaters. So there were rumors swirling that, you know, Nimoy was kind of having a moment at this point in time. So it was really nice that after so many years to see the guy back. So I loved that. And as you said, it's tough for me to figure out if Walter is lying or if he just has memory holes that he doesn't know. But obviously when he's watching that video, we're trying to get a read. Like, is he watching this to remember or is he watching this because he remembers? And the other interesting thing is that as we're the episode was going on and the Cortexa fan stuff is all re-explained, they do mention how Nick Lane really believed himself to be a warrior for the upcoming war between universes, which of course was the other revelation a few weeks ago that Walter wrote that manifesto about the war between the universes. So now we're like, all right, if Walter back in the day fully believed this and he did these trials on children because he thought they were going to be warriors in the battle is there more information that we don't have in terms of how nefarious or how his plan is actually like for the greater good in some way and not sinister that we just don't have. So I love that there are still huge gaps that we need to fill in. And hopefully as we ramp up and the fact that we are getting the voice of William Bell and finding out more about Olivia's strange history we feel like those answers are coming very soon. So as we head into the final couple of episodes of the season, they have really ramped up the stakes of our emotional investment into these characters, especially because seeing a young Olivia in a, a terrible situation, looking upset, looking like this is some sort of torture video is upsetting and knowing that the guy that we have come to love as the wacky psychedelic lover is standing behind the camera just reframes everything that we know. And even going forward makes us wonder what happens when Olivia's memory clicks into place. And the other thing that you and I know that the audience doesn't know, at least those of you who are watching this for the first time, is that there is a reason why Walter is the way that he is. And when we find out that down the road, I think that it will be a giant revelation and that will explain a lot of Walter's behavior to this point. But that that is a story for another time. And I really I like like you said, in the you know in the next couple of weeks here, things are gonna get crazy. And I really like how the show is ramping up to something really, really mind-blowing, and I really can't wait to talk about it in the next couple of weeks here. So that brings us to next week. We will be talking about 
episode 18 and 19 of season one of Fringe. So if you are watching along, those are the two episodes we will be dissecting next week. If you guys are enjoying the show, please like, follow, subscribe, tell your friends, let us know. You can tweet at JJUniverse815 or use the hashtag Radio815. If you want to talk to me on Twitter, my name is at Matt Crandall on Twitter. Marcelo, you're also on Twitter. But if you want to talk to me, like Matt said, I'm also on Twitter. I'm at CreekFanatic88. So that will do it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. We appreciate it. Until next time, Radio 815 over and out. Radio 815 is a Balloonhead Productions presentation in association with Killer Newt Productions.